The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu. Welcome to the Democracy Paradox Podcast. This is my daddy. My name is Justin Kemp, and I am your host as we explore the Democracy Paradox. The German question haunted international relations for generations. Like China, it was a rising authoritarian power, but its successful democratization after the Second World War cast an amnesia upon the uncertainty and anxiety it had caused the international community. Today, democracy in Germany is taken for granted. It is a force of democratic stability within Europe and in the world. Its journey from dictatorship to democracy is largely forgotten, and its current challenges are often ignored. Some of those challenges have surfaced in recent years, though. Hessian politician Walter Lübcke was assassinated by a far-right extremist on June 2, 2019, and in August, the New York Times reported that neo-Nazis had established a presence in the ranks of the military and the police. Today's guest, Michael Hughes, offers a helpful reminder. Democracy may have prevailed in Germany, but conceptions remain contested. So, crucially, the story's outcome cannot be an ending, for the process remains ongoing. Michael is a professor of history at Wake Forest University. His research has focused on 19th and 20th century German history. He is the author of the forthcoming book, Embracing Democracy in Modern Germany, Political Citizenship and Participation, 1871-2000. to I liked Michael's book because it approaches history like political science. It focuses on the development of democracy through political culture. It's a thicker conception of democracy that goes beyond constitutions and institutions to consider democratization as a process. My plan today is to touch on the different regimes throughout modern Germany's history, but I also keep a focus on the big picture trends. So don't worry if you're not familiar with Germany. This is going to be a good introduction, but more importantly, this conversation is more about the process of democratization the process that has challenges and successes that many countries face. This is how I chose to begin 2021. Looking back through history before we begin to move forward. So this is my conversation with Michael Hughes. Michael Hughes, welcome to the Democracy Paradox. Thank you for having me. Your book actually caught me off guard it's it's about the history of democracy in Germany, but I really expected it to tell a narrative history. 
your chapters are divided into historical periods, but there isn't like a clear focus on dates and names. You, you take the liberty to kind of move around because it's more of a history of political culture. I, I thought it was really fascinating. Well, certainly there are lots of narrative histories of uh, German politics and German history generally. And it's this, I was trying to do something different, which, as you say, is to look at the political culture and its development and influence. And what really struck me about doing it this way was the way you think about democracy is a thicker sense of democracy. It's, it's less about the institutions and the laws. You're not trying to mention that the constitution changed this way. They established a parliament here. They established different laws. You'll mention that, but that's, it's more about the behavior and culture. So I want to start there. Can you offer a definition or description of democracy before we kind of move into the specifics of German history? Well, this is a really fraught question, of course, as, you'll, as you know well from the book, that people define democracy in wildly different ways, certainly in German history over the last 200 years. What I would suggest, perhaps, is that there are certain elements that are crucial for democracy. One, I would have to say, is the rule of law. Um, if the state can arrest you on specious charges and punish you or poison you, it's hard to engage in freedom of expression. And freedom of expression is a prerequisite for democracy in the sense that the people, and especially as voters, can't know what their options are unless the society offers freedom of expression. Something else is minority rights. And this is an important issue that has complex implications because if democracy is the rule of the people, you have to decide who are the people. And if you're going to have this in any meaningful, broad sense, then you're going to end up with minorities, people who are not necessarily the same as what's taken as the norm in the society, either on grounds of religion or ethnicity or politics. But if democracy is going to be stable and function, the minority has to have a sense that they have a voice and even that they might someday be part of a majority. Something else, obviously, of course, is honest elections. That is to say that uh, even dictators hold elections. Um, the question is, you know, who's counting the votes? And how honest are they being about the counting? And the elections have to have substantive effects on who ends up uh, being in power. And something else that certainly political scientists have long talked about uh, going back a couple hundred years is what we call checks and balances. You know, the assumption Madison made was if, if we were all angels, we wouldn't have to worry about government, but we're not. And so the people in power are often tempted to think that, well, they're the ones who understand and they should therefore stay in power. And obviously, democracy involves the possibility that those in power will be exchanged for someone else. So again, there have to be checks and balances in the system to ensure that um, those currently in power aren't able to uh, aggregate so much power that they're able to forestall um, their replacement. So that I would see as kind of the, the basics as political scientists have developed them. You know, when you get past that, you begin to get into values. Uh, people debate how much input is desirable or practical. And then, of course, you get the discussion between, for example, representative democracy and direct democracy. You also have debates, if looking more closely at Germany, about the role of interests in the way politics are played out. Americans, since the Federalist Papers, James Madison's Federalist 10, have assumed that the society is divided and that people have different interests. Germans in the late 19th and the first half of the 20th century, many of them tended to assume that there was what they called the Gesamtinteresse, a common interest that everyone in the society shared, and that politics should be about the realization of that uh, common interest. 
So a lot of uh, Germans end up, particularly in the early 20th century, opposing parliamentary democracy, representative democracy, because they assume that it represents what they called egotistical interests, these different interests within the society instead of the common interest. So, you know, giving a definition of democracy then becomes problematic um, once you get beyond some of these kind of basics that seem like prerequisites for any meaningful ongoing popular role. I thought what was interesting about your book, though, was how you believe political culture has an enormous role in democracy. It's the role and behavior of citizens themselves says a lot about whether or not the full process of democratization has occurred. In fact, I would go so far as to say that in your book, you make the case that the process of democratization never really ends. Yeah, well, certainly the notion of political culture and its importance is, it goes back quite a ways, at least to Amund um, Verba and in the United States and uh, Rolf Dahrendorf in Germany uh, from the late 50s and the 1960s. And of course, there are precursors of this going even farther back. So what I'm doing is developing an idea here that others, basically political scientists, developed and trying to apply it systematically across you know, six regimes uh, in 130 years uh, of German history. And I think that and other historians, I think, agree with me that you can see the ways in which political culture made a difference, that the choices Germans made, uh, for example, this notion that there is a Gesamtinteresse, a common interest, made many Germans opposed to parliamentary democracy. And that had real consequences in the late 1920s, early 1930s for political choices. Uh, and the consequence ultimately, of course, is the end of parliamentary democracy and of democracy overall. So this is an example of the ways in which people's assumptions about politics and their values in approaching politics can really have substantive effects. Now, I grew up with a democratic Germany already existing. I just took it for granted. I was 10 when the Berlin Wall fell, or maybe nine when the Berlin Wall actually fell. And so for me, the idea of a unified Germany is even taken for granted and when we think about democratizing the rest of Europe, we focus a lot on Germany playing a leading role. So it, it's interesting how your book doesn't have this clear divide like I, I naturally do in my head. In your introduction, you mentioned that there are moments like the revolutions of 1848, even with the rise of Napoleon, uh, Hegel called that the end of history. So you could begin the process of democratization there. So why did you choose to begin in 1871? Well, I chose 1871 because that's when you have a unified Germany. So the subject of the book really doesn't exist before 1871. And certainly German historians write histories of, quote, Germany, unquote, going back centuries. But if you're going to talk about the political culture of Germany, which is the, the task I set myself, it, it's hard to start anywhere but 1871. Now, in that process of unification, though, Bismarck included some democratic elements in creating a unified Germany to establish legitimacy. For instance, there was universal suffrage. They had a parliament. I don't want to go so far as to say it's democratic, but why did Bismarck include some of these democratic elements? Were these even steps forward for Germany in many places, or were many of these elements already existing before the unification happened? Well, the underlying issue here is that uh, in 1806, uh, Prussia was crushed by Napoleon and the Prussian commandant of Berlin told the citizens of proclamation, the king has lost a battle. 
the duty of the burger is to remain calm. So basically, he's telling them, you didn't lose a battle, and you don't have to do anything. Uh, and German military and political leaders, you know, not just in Prussia, but across German-speaking Europe and elsewhere in Europe, concluded that the French won because the French people had a national identity and were committed to the government and the society and willing to fight for it. So this has been an underlying principle for political leaders in, this, in Central Europe since the beginning of the 19th century that you have to find some ways to get the population engaged and get them to participate in some ways politically if you're going to win battles and win wars and secure uh, political stability. And what happens, of course, is that um, you get parliaments in Germany after 1815, but they tend to have limited suffrages and limited powers. So what Bismarck introduces in particular is, of course, a national parliament, the Reichstag, and that's where he introduces universal suffrage. And there'd been universal suffrage in votes in the revolutions of 1848, but that had been superseded. And the reason he does the, the universal suffrage is that uh, two things. First of all, he's trying to create a unified Germany out of what had been the 36 separate states at that point. And he needs to engage the whole population if he wants to be able to do that. And so the universal suffrage is to give all of the adult male citizens of the German lands a sense that they are part of a single political whole. And it, it ends up being a secret ballot because the liberals, in the European sense of the term, sort of the free, free marketeers at that point, didn't trust Bismarck. And they were afraid that he would try to manipulate uh, the vote the way Napoleon III had been doing in France. And so they insisted on a secret ballot. And so this is the reason then you get this uh, universal suffrage, is a way to secure political legitimacy for the regime. You know, and as, we, as I mentioned, uh, even dictators hold elections. Um, in the 20th and 21st centuries. And this is part of that larger project. Now, Bismarck also introduced some reforms to establish, I don't want to say a welfare state, but to establish some kinds of, of public support for people and expand the sense of what the state was capable of doing. And my understanding is a lot of that was based on trying to establish legitimacy with public opinion. Was this a transformation in terms of how Germany, how at least Prussia approached politics in terms of listening to the people on some issues so that they could essentially retain power? Yeah, I think it's done very much in that context. It's in the aftermath of the rise of the Socialist Party in Germany. And when Bismarck introduces the, those early social insurance bills, he stands up in the parliament and says, we're doing this to show the workers that they'll get more from us conservatives than they'll get from those damn socialists. And so it's very much a matter of Bismarck perceiving that he has to secure legitimacy. And that means he can't simply ignore the interests of a growing portion of the population, um, industrial workers, because they're the ones who initially are entitled to these uh, programs. They, they expand over time in various ways. After World War I, democracy is sort of imposed on Germany. That That's probably a little bit harsh. But it collapses with the rise of Nazism and Adolf Hitler. Can you explain the issues that the Weimar Republic had and why it actually collapsed? Well, the, the Germans choose democracy in November 1918 in the context of their looming defeat in World War I. Uh, when they first asked for an armistice, Woodrow Wilson, U.S. president, told them the American people would be more comfortable negotiating with a democracy than with a monarchy. Um, and this contributed significantly to the overthrow of the monarchy. 
So when Germans get democracy, it's not, it is, as you say, not exactly imposed, but it's not exactly voluntary either. And there had certainly been democratic forces in Germany before World War I, and they had been developing further in the course of World War I. But when Germans sign on for democracy, partly it's because they think they're going to get a better deal out of the allies if they do. And what they get instead is the Versailles Treaty, which they see as draconian and grossly unjust. So from the very start, the Weimar Republic is in trouble because it's associated with defeat and then with this horrible treaty, because the Allies basically require the democratic German government to vote in favor of the treaty in order to uh, end the blockade and and, uh, various occupation elements and so on. Germany also is suffering miserably in the aftermath of World War I, and they end up having a 100 trillion percent inflation, 1914 to 1923. And this is absolutely devastating for people's life savings and um, on an ongoing basis for the economy. They barely get five good years from 1924 to, uh, to 1929 when the Great Depression hits. And the Depression had already come to agriculture worldwide in 1927. So the Weimar Republic suffers from serious economic difficulties at its start and at its end. In addition, there are the issues about the nature of parliament. And before 1914, the uh, political parties in the parliament had been unwilling to try and establish parliamentary government, where the chancellor, the head of government, was chosen by the parliament because they wanted checks and balances. And they saw the monarch as a check on what they called parliamentary absolutism, absolute power for parliament. So when they set up the Weimar Constitution, they want to somehow check the parliament. And so they give substantial powers to the president. He's elected by popular election across the whole country, which gives him more legitimacy than any individual parliamentary deputy. And they give him the power to rule by decree in emergencies. So this then is a divided democracy in a sense where you have both parliamentary democratic legitimacy and presidential democratic legitimacy. And these will come into conflict after 1930. Arguably, a larger issue is that one of the common interests versus egotistical interests. Because as I said, most Germans in the 1920s and 30s seem to be convinced that there is a single common interest of all the people in Germany, and that that's what politics should be about, realizing that common interest. And they assume that parliament, by its very nature, can only represent egotistical interests. And so they're they're dubious about parliament, clearly and they're dubious about political parties. So you then have forces in Germany who are looking for some sort of uh, transformation that will move back in the direction of the empire, uh, not with a new king necessarily, but with some limits on uh, parliamentary uh, power. And then this comes to fruition after 1930 in the course of the depression when the president starts ruling by decree and the parliament is too disorganized or too divided to be able to stop him. So then you get the end of uh, parliamentary democracy in 1930. I think it also revolves around the common theme within your book about competing conceptions of what democracy is. And Weber's idea of plebiscitarian democracy is the idea that people go to the, go to an election, they place a vote and then they shut up. (laughs) They don't do anything afterwards. They let the ruler do what he needs, the leader do what he needs to be able to do to lead. And 
Weber, of course, was instrumental in doing some of the work towards creating the German constitution and thought very highly of having an extraordinarily strong, strong leader in charge. And I think that in some degrees that shapes the way that, that Germans are thinking about it. It's very different than Habermas's conception of democracy, which is another German that comes up much more recently in terms of German history. So I, I just think too, in terms of the inability of the Weimar Republic to be able to have a leader who can who can rule while at the same time balancing the need to actually include input from the people. I mean, there was just a a lack of understanding of how to be able to balance the idea of leadership within a democracy with the idea of actually ruling from the people on a larger scale, I would say. Yeah, well, if you look at the way the Germans are acting politically in the 1920s, uh, the assumption on people's part is that if you go out publicly to demonstrate, it's almost invariably going to be not over a specific issue saying, I think we should do X instead of Y. It's going to be in support of a political party or a political leader um, or a political movement. And so this reflects the kind of attitudes towards leadership that you're talking about, that what you do need is a strong leader. And of course, at the end of the 1920s, you get Germans calling for a quote, autoritaire démocratie. And autoritaire is usually translated as authoritarian, which makes it sound like a contradiction in terms. But if you go, you know, five definitions down in the big German dictionary, uh, autoritaire can mean capable of exercising authority. And that becomes then a central issue for Germans as they face the Great Depression. Can we get a government that is capable of exercising authority and hence of dealing with the problems that we are facing, and also, of course, dealing with the violence on the streets that the Nazis are, are uh, fomenting. Because of that, the rise of Hitler becomes almost, for some of his supporters, becomes an expression of democracy rather than being completely anti-democratic. Even though Hitler verbally said that he was opposed to democracy, there was still a sense that this represented the will of the people well, Hitler wanted to have it both ways. Privately, he was contemptuous of democracy. Publicly, he said that he alone could provide true democracy. Parliament, he said, could never do that. It could only represent, again, the egotistical interests, whereas he, he claimed, embodied the will of the people. And this is a phrase that he uses. So um, he's trying to claim democratic legitimacy, even while establishing a brutal dictatorship. More than any other leader, he can say that he uh, reflects the views of the people because he would periodically hold plebiscites carefully constructed with the, you know, the, the authorities counting the votes in which he would get overwhelming majorities. So he's trying to have it both ways. So at the end of World War II, you have another instance where Germany democratizes, at least in form, if not in terms of substance. And, and I would say largely in terms of substance. But it's it's similar to Weimar, but this time it succeeds. Why does why does German democracy succeed, at least in West Germany, after World War II when it didn't succeed after World War I? Well, there, there's the stereotype of the Germans as particularly subservient. And certainly there were Germans who had you know, what were called authoritarian values. Um, but of course, there are people in other countries who have authoritarian values as well. In the aftermath of World War uh, two, the dicta dictatorial uh, processes that Hitler had Im implemented in practice are somewhat discredited because Hitler had implemented them. And it then brought the country to this absolutely horrific defeat, this, you know, the second in a generation. And you have two authoritarian regimes 
the German Empire and uh, Hitler, and they both result in um, defeat. In addition, United States, Britain, and France are democracies, and they win the war, and at least in the West. And so they then become the model, and they, they seek actively to uh, in, implement democracy in Germany. So the ability of the Germans to, the West Germans, to succeed in establishing a democratic political culture partly reflects a reaction against the failures of authoritarian regimes in the past in Germany. It also reflects the success of West Germany. There is some relationship between outcomes and political legitimacy. And if the regime is failing to provide the outcomes people want, such as defeat in World War I or the Great Depression or defeat in World War II, that tends to discredit the regime. Well, West Germany presides over what the Germans call the economic miracle. That is to say, the enormous rates of economic growth Germany experiences um, 1948 to um, 1973. And Germany continues to be a wealthy, prosperous country in the decades since. So all of those elements then provide a a solid basis for democracy in Germany. You do also get changes in people's political culture. And one of them is that, so far as we can see, Germans cease to, for the most part, cease to believe that there is a single common interest that politics should seek to realize. And there's various forms of evidence. We now have opinion polls we can look to, you know, the parties they choose to vote for, that suggests that most Germans have come to accept that political interests, economic interests, social interests are real, and that they are going to have to be expressed in some way or another in the political system. And that makes it much more easier for Germans then to accept parliamentary democracy with its conflicts and its compromises um, than earlier generations of Germans have been. What are some of the authoritarian legacies that remained? Well, in the short run, there's a number of opinion polls asking questions about uh, Hitler and about Nazism. And you get uh, majorities or near majorities in the late 40s, early 50s, saying that if Hitler had died in early 1939, he would have been one of the greatest statesmen in German history. And you also get people saying that Nazism uh, was a good idea, badly implemented. And to some degree, you can see this as a holdover of authoritarian ideas. But on the other hand, if you voted for Hitler or supported Hitler in the 1930s, it's hard to say anything, but he wasn't such a bad person originally. And you can't have to say that Nazism was obviously evil from the start, because then you'd have to explain why you voted for it or supported it. So this is an evidence of some holdover of authoritarian ideas. There is also some evidence of, in the late 40s, early 50s, that Germans continue to believe that there is a single common interest. Because one of the questions that's asked more than once is, should there be one party or multiple parties? And initially in the late 40s, you're getting majorities saying there should be a single party. And that can be read as implying that there is a single common interest that should be implemented that you shouldn't have the kind of competition of ideas and policies that you get normally in a democracy. And then there's some evidence that child-rearing practices and so on continue to emphasize authority and obedience in the late, again in the late 40s and, and early 1950s. So these are elements that can be seen as authoritarian hangovers, although they gradually do uh, dissipate. It's hard for me to decouple the idea of Adolf Hitler from anti-Semitism and all the other just tragedies that he brought upon people. You mentioned that some people thought Nazism was a good idea, badly implemented. 
how did they interpret the idea of Nazism outside of, of those horrific events? Well, one of the things that the Nazis promised was that they would promote what's called the racial community. And of course, this implies exclusion, implies driving the Jews out. And there was substantial anti-Semitism in Germany, as there was actually in Europe, the U.S., Canada, etc. And so when people thought about the, the people's, the racial community, they thought about it as German, ethnic Germans, and that other people really didn't have a place in it. And so to the extent that Nazism was about promoting the good of this racial community, of which these people felt themselves a part, that would, that would be the good idea. And then the badly implemented would be, of course, starting World War II and um, the Holocaust. Although for the most part, Germans in the 1950s and well into the 60s didn't want to talk about the Holocaust. So let's talk a little bit about the constitutional design of Germany, beginning in the Bonn Republic, moving forward through today, because we've been talking a lot about culture. What, what is the constitutional design? How are people elected what makes Germans' constitution unique? Well, the Germans have a parliamentary government. That is to say, they vote for deputies to the parliament. With a, It's a mixed system of you, you vote half, you get two votes, one for someone from a, a district you live in and one for a political party. And that's how you get the delegates to the parliament. It's basically proportional representation. The share of the vote you get as a party is how many delegates you get. There's a 5% limit. If your party gets less than 5% of the votes, then they don't get any delegates. And this was to prevent the p- political splintering that had taken place in the Weimar Republic. So the parliament chooses the chancellor, and the chancellor is the head of government. And the chancellor has significant political powers, but only is in office at, uh, as long as he, as he or she has support within the parliament. Um, they also have what's called a constructive vote of no confidence. That is, the parliament can vote no confidence in the chancellor, and he will, or she will have to resign, but only if they have a vote to replace that chancellor with someone else. So you can't get a, you know, like the communists and the Nazis in the Weimar Republic voting against the chancellor, uh, but not, they're, they're obviously not going to choose a joint government in its place. So the president in the um, Federal Republic is, a, is elected not by the people, but by a special assembly with delegates from the national parliament and from the state governments, governments of the different German states. And so he doesn't have the legitimacy that the Weimar president had. And he does also doesn't have the power to issue decrees. The Germans do introduce a constitutional court. And this is another check on the, on the parliament. This constitutional court can declare laws unconstitutional, and it has at various points in the past, and made other constitutional pronouncements. And the Germans also reemphasize federalism in the Federal Republic's constitution. So that powers over things like education, the police are at the... the the state level. And this is, again, a check on the parliament. So that's the major ones. The 5% threshold I've often heard described as one of the elements of militant democracy, where they tried to put up obstacles to keep small fringe parties from entering parliament. Most of German history, West German history, up until about 1980, from what I could tell, is pretty much dominated just by three political parties, which is bizarre for a proportional system. But like you said, it's more of a mixed system. So I'd like to know, in terms of uh, militant democracy, was it necessary to, to hold back the far right? Or was it really just an incarnation 
of authoritarian attitudes against protest and opposition that had proliferated going back to Imperial Germany? Well, it's a complicated process because one of the central elements in that militant democracy was the provision that only supporters of democracy were entitled to exercise democratic rights. And so you do get the uh, constitutional court uh, banning two political parties, a far-right party that was clearly intended as a successor to the Nazis and uh, the German Communist Party. And this was in the 1950s. The federal government has banned uh, numerous organizations over the decades um, on the same grounds, that they were promoting anti-democratic values. And there's also a, an expectation that civil servants must be supporters of the Constitution. And you know th- this is something that a lot of emphasis is put on, but as you suggest, it's hard to know how important it was for the survival of West German democracy and subsequently unified Germany's democracy. There's much less political division than there was in the Weimar Republic. There's much lower levels of support for extremist parties of either the right or the left than there was in um, the Weimar Republic. And you know some of these elements exist in other countries as well. You know, when I enlisted in the U.S. Army, I took an oath to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And anyone who takes political office on the national level in the U.S. takes a a similarly worded oath. Um, So it's not like the U.S. has been absent in this. And of course, in the 1940s and 50s, the U.S. did push some people out of the civil service on the grounds that they were communists. So the the militant democracy is something that Germans are very self-conscious about and, and kind of proud of to some degree. But, you know, there's, there are very few countries who have that kind of a systematic effort to um, push out uh, marginal forces, but have nonetheless remained democracies for decades or longer. So it's really hard to know how important that was for the success of West Germany. Now, I bring it up because there's a chapter in your book called Daring Democracy, where you get to 1968, Willy Brandt becomes the chancellor in Germany. You have a shift from the Christian Democrats to the Social Democrats. And you emphasize in the book how there is almost an antagonism against the idea of protest, the idea of opposition on the streets, if you will. And Willy Brandt shifted to start opening up German political culture to be something thicker, to be something broader. Was that sense of militant democracy holding back that protest culture? Was it necessary to do that because the protest culture would have been something that could have brought down the Republic? Yeah, the the protest culture, first of all, Germans have always protested. From the 19th century on, there have always been Germans who protested, including in the Third Reich and in Communist East Germany. In the aftermath of World War II, there is this sense that if you go out into the streets, that's, quote, Nazi and communist tactics of pressure from the streets, unquote, and illegitimate. And this reflects in part a sense of democracy as purely representative democracy, where you elect your leader and go home and shut up, as Max Weber said. And so there, there is a real resistance to the notion of popular protest on the part of many Germans. This is exacerbated by the experience of the Weimar Republic when protest in the streets comes to be identified for a lot of Germans with uh, street battles between Nazis and communists and as representing a kind of irrationalism. So there is this dramatic shift around 1970 toward a more participatory democracy in West Germany. You've had 
participants in the streets um, earlier than that, various forms of protest, but this comes increasingly to be accepted. And Billy Brandt's an interesting figure here because he urges people to dare more democracy, but then he goes on to say what that means is we'll listen to your interest groups um, and then we'll make the decisions. On the other hand, he does, uh, his government does revise the criminal code in ways that make it um, easier for people to demonstrate and make it less risky in legal terms to, to demonstrate. Uh, in the past, if the police said a demonstration must disperse, if you didn't disappear immediately, they could arrest you. Even if the demonstration was so loud that you couldn't hear the police saying the demonstration is dispersed. So there, this change is a significant one for making it easier for people to demonstrate. And the militant democracy is issues about protecting against extremist parties and so on. This isn't directly related to demonstrations. So it doesn't come up in that context. It's other measures that the state has used to try and constrain people from demonstrating. Yeah. So let, let's move over to East Germany, because the idea of, of German democratization, East Germany is sometimes forgotten. So in your book, you write... The GDR was an authoritarian, but not totalitarian state. What's the difference? Yeah, the totalitarianism model develops in the aftermath of World War II to describe basically fascist and communist dictatorships. And the implication is, as the title suggests, total control by the state. And what happens is that when historians, well, starting initially political scientists, but later when historians also go back and look at these states, they find that, that neither any fascist state nor any communist state actually had total control. There was also always some ways in which people were able to exercise agency. And this was certainly the case in communist East Germany as well. People could uh, criticize. They regularly held meetings in, the, in your, your workplace about various issues. And it's clear that in those workplaces, the working folks could just criticize various issues, shortages in the stores, the uh, lack of input so they could do their job, and so on. At the end of the day, there would be some policy thing that the meeting was called to approve, and people had to approve it. But in the meantime, they could complain and criticize. This was actually easier for workers than it was uh, blue-collar workers than it was for white-collar workers and professionals. Because if you were a white-collar worker and a professional and you wanted to advance, you had to be a member of the, the East German Communist Party, and you were subject to their discipline. Whereas if you were a blue-collar worker, you didn't have to, and there was a labor shortage. And so they needed these people. So the, you know, the, the factory managers had to sit here and listen to the workers cr criticizing and complaining, but they don't want to call in the Stasi, the secret police, because then the guy's going to get arrested and who's going to do his job? So there are these kinds of ways. People also figure out ways to use the regime's own rhetoric against it. The estimate is that there were 500,000 to a million petitions per year in East Germany. And that's a country with about 16 million people. And people would then use the communist regime's rhetoric to argue, demand, petition for better housing or a visa to go visit, you know, whatever, Czechoslovakia, and to get more goods in the stores and so on. So again, there are various ways in which even in these regimes, people could express themselves. The most important way in East Germany is that the regime, as I said, had a labor shortage. And so the, uh, the factory managers didn't want to get rid of the workers. Also, they had a shared interest with the workers in keeping the production quotas low so that they could meet their plan targets. 
so that what happens is that the, the management and the labor is cooperating to keep production quotas low. And the um, workers would also push to get their wages increased. And again, the, the company doesn't want to lose these guys. They'll quit and go to work for another enterprise that will pay them a better wage. And it also doesn't want trouble with the regime if there's you know, open conflict in their, in their enterprise. So what you get in East Germany is a steady rise in real in uh, wages across the 1970s and 80s. And the regime basically, to meet consumer demand, is forced to cut back on investment and maintenance. And by the time you get to 1989, the economy is literally on the verge of collapse. And the regime itself estimates that it would have to cut real wages 25 to 33% if the economy was going to recover. And this is a major contributor to the um, 1989 revolution. So there are you know, various ways in which people can uh, participate in political life indirectly through criticism and so on, even under um, the communist regime. Go back to the workers again. There was a part in your book where you describe how the workers wouldn't, wouldn't have strikes because that would be a red flag for their bosses, but there would be work stoppages where they could negotiate things without higher level communist figures becoming aware of it. So it, it kind of empowered the workers on occasion to be able to push for things as long as it wasn't asking too much. If their, if their superiors thought it was reasonable, they could make those accommodations because they didn't want to bring in somebody who was, you know, the next level, because it would, it would raise red flags. Yes. And you know, some of this is terminology, that is to say, uh, in some ways, they, if we, we would call it a strike, but the, the, the people in East Germany would call it a work stoppage because strike, as you said, is a, uh, was an evil word. So let's jump ahead to, to contemporary Germany. The, the political parties have fragmented to become, we talked about in West Germany up until about 1980, there were three main political parties. I I count that right now in Parliament there are six parties, um, with the left, the Green, and now the AFD having representation beyond the three historical parties. Why has the German political party system fragmented in recent years? Well, this is something that you're seeing happening in, in various ways across Europe and in, indirectly in places like the US, Canada, Australia. Arguably, one of the things that's happened is that we're, we're in a post-industrial economy. And so the issues around which political parties formed and structured themselves in the late 19th and early part of the 20th century have in some ways been superseded. And for example, the share of, of blue-collar workers, the traditional base of the Social Democratic Party, um, has dropped substantially. And you've got new social groups of white-collar workers and professionals. And so you get political parties then that are trying to jockey within that structure. In the case of Germany, um, the number of people who wish to go to church regularly has plummeted. And so the Christian Democratic Party, which as its name suggests, was organized around religious issues, its constituency is declining. So partly it's the fact that you've got new social groups that are appearing in these countries. And then you also have new social issues that are arising. And these new political parties then 
tend to organize themselves around the new social groups and around these new issues. So the, the Greens, in some ways, reflect the rise of the, sort of, you know, the tertiary sector, uh, the, the economists would say, the white-collar workers and the professionals, and some of the issues that are of concern to them. The, the left, what happens there is the Social Democrats are trying to compete with the Christian Democrats in a neoliberal environment in the 1980s and 90s, and arguably they lost touch with, with elements of the working class. And so then you get a party to the left of the Social Democrats that um, tries to be more um, assertive, more inclined towards socialism. And it, it's also helped by the uh, unification because there are people in East Germany who are still sympathetic to socialism. And um, with the, the AFD, what happens is in 2000, you get a new citizenship law, which says that citizenship doesn't have to mean you're ethnically German, makes it much, much easier for people who are not ethnically German, but born in Germany to get citizenship. And so this is then aggravated in the, the 2000 teens by um, immigration, the floods of immigrants. And so the uh, AFD is organized you know, primarily around issues having to do with immigration and the status of um, citizenship. Would you call the AFD anti-democratic or even anti-system? It's definitely anti-system. It says it wants a, a direct election of the president and it wants more plebiscites, both of which, of course, it can present as democratic and does present as democratic. So it's, it's definitely anti-system. It's opposed to the existing federal republic and it wants to replace it. There are ways in which the AFD is similar to the pre-1945 German political culture in the sense that they tend to emphasize the existence of a single common interest that all Germans share, in this context, mean basically ethnically German. And their call for an elected president and so on is a reflection of this desire to replace the, you know, the egotistical interest conflicts that you see in parliaments with some more unified uh, form of political activity. Is there a divide that remains politically between East and West Germany? Um, there's less than you might think. That is to say, if, if you ask people, do they support democracy? Uh, the numbers in both areas are virtually identical. If you ask, do you support the Federal Republic? The numbers in East and Western Germany are very, very similar to one another. For, and for example, the AFD, it's, it's East German voters for the AFD who get all the attention, but proportionally, there are just as many West German as East German voters for the AFD. So it's not you know, confined to the East in that regard. On the other hand, there are some differences that reflect uh, political past. For example, people in Eastern Germany are more likely to say they support, quote, socialism, unquote, than are people in Western Germany. There are some in both who do, but more significantly in the East. In terms of um, the social state and social state provisions, more people in the East favor an expansion of that proportionally than do in the West. There is a curious phenomenon um, under the communists, they allowed people to watch West German television. 80% of East Germans did. The, the ones who didn't almost all lived in areas that were, for topographical reasons, they couldn't receive the signal. The people who well, couldn't watch West German television were known to East Germans as living in, quote, the Valley of the Clueless, unquote. And if you look at a map of votes for the AFD in Eastern Germany and the, the Valley of the Clueless, they overlap. So it is clear that access to West German television influenced the political culture of much of East Germany. It seems to have had less impact in areas where people couldn't actually regularly watch West German television, uh, even 30 years later. 
So that's the kind of political differences. Yeah. I think it's important to note Angela Merkel, who has epitomized democracy in Germany, who has epitomized the move to the center for politics within within Europe, is actually East German. But at the same time, if you divide leaders into the charismatic or ordinary, I think Angela Merkel gets considered to be more of ordinary leadership rather than the charismatic form that you would think of as a Adolf Hitler, the, the Mussolini, the ones we think of as totalitarian, but even Donald Trump would be considered charismatic leader in that, that scenario. Angela Merkel just epitomizes what we think of as ordinary leadership, but at the same time, she's been a leader for 15 years. What does that say about what Germans consider about leadership today, as opposed to the past, that they've both maintained the same leader far longer than the United States would would allow a president to be in office, but at the same time, somebody who is who doesn't exemplify any of the authoritarian tendencies you would normally think of in a leader who'd been in power for that long. Well, the common epithet for um, Angela Merkel is Muti, which means mom, and so she has been this kind of um, parental figure in many respects, but not, but not as you say, an authoritarian or charismatic figure. Her, her long reign represents, first of all, her competence. Um, she's been an effective leader in various ways. It also reflects the divisions within German politics because much of her ability to, to last has been her moving to the center and creating these great co so-called great coalitions with the Social Democrats, the, the nominally left of center party. And she, of course, has arguably pushed some people out of the Christian Democrats and into the AFD by moving toward the center. And it's not clear where the Christian Democrats are going to land um, after she after she leaves office uh, at the end of this year. So uh, in terms of the way you phrased your question, if, if you look at the leaders after um, World War II, Adenauer and Brandt uh, both had a certain degree of charisma, um, but nowhere near the kind that that Hitler had. Again, you know, again using epithets, uh, uh, Adenauer was der Alte, the old man. Uh, which is not the same as the kind of epithets, you know, the representations that Hitler had, for example. Um, and Braun certainly had a following, but, you know, he wasn't in office that long. Okay. So I think that there's a longer term moving away on the part of Germans from the desire for some sort of authoritarian, charismatic leader, um, at least uh, if you look at the choices that they've made. Yes. So your book concludes democratization, has not been and could not be a story of virtue triumphant with a happy ending or any ending at all. It can only be a work in progress. I think that epitomizes the idea of challenges that remain for every democracy, the United States most of all right now. What challenges remain for Germany in its process of democratization and for its democracy as it exists today? Some of these issues are broader. That is to say, there are dramatic economic changes taking place in the world even before COVID-19 hit. Um, the rise of China and other uh, traditionally less developed areas means increased competition for the German economy and economies elsewhere in Europe and North America. And so that's an issue that these folks have to face. Immigration is going to be an issue for all of these societies. None of the highly developed societies in Europe or North America 
uh, is, re is reproducing itself. The populations, native-born populations are shrinking. And somebody's got to take care of, you know, folks. Um, you know, when you retire, uh, somebody else is supporting you. You're not working anymore. Somebody else is producing goods that you are taking advantage of. And so who is that going to be? It's not going to be your kids or your neighbor's kids to the degree that should be because there aren't enough of them. Um, in addition, climate change is, by all reports, likely to produce dramatic migration movements. So uh, migration is going to be an issue. It certainly is for the Germans. The AFD, is, its support has dropped uh, by about a third, I think, since the election. And so this is not on the, on the top of the table anymore, but the issue is not going to go away um, any more than it's going to go away for France or Britain or Italy or the United States or Canada. So that's you know, a couple of issues. Climate change, of course, is, is a, um, a global issue um, and perhaps an existential issue um, that we have, to, we have to deal with. And uh, more specifically, the, the rise of China raises all sorts of, um, of issues. Aside from its uh, economic competitive issues, uh, it will be a world power and perhaps the world power um, later in the 21st century. How concerned are you about far-right sentiments in the military and police that seem to keep popping up. There was just recently, a few days ago, a story about Franco A, who was an officer in the German military. He had even gotten a master's degree through the military and was part of a far-right conspiracy where he infiltrated inside of a refugee camp, posed as a second identity, and was apparently plotting assassination attempts of different figures. How concerned are you about these far-right infiltration attempts that pop up in the New York Times every couple every couple months right now? Well, I think it's something that's definitely worth attention. The uh, people in Germany have complained for decades that the constitutional police who, who are supposed to take care of these sorts of issues are, quote, blind in the right eye, unquote. That first of all, they were obsessed with communists. Um, and then after communism disappeared as a, as a direct threat, they were obsessed with terrorists. And by terrorists, of course, they tended to define them as, as Muslim um, unjustifiably. The, these sorts of folks have been around for quite some time. That's clear. And um, it's not just in Germany. The United States, the Homeland Security folks recently have said that right-wing terrorists are the big threat in the United States. Um, and certainly we've seen evidence of, of, as you say, planning for terrorist actions by right-wing extremist groups. So it is something that needs to be taken into account. I'm relatively confident about Germany based on uh, the data that we have about uh, German attitudes towards democracy and about the fact that any regime that lasts long enough gets a certain degree of, of legitimacy uh, simply by virtue of age. So I think Germany is a stable democracy and is likely to remain one for the foreseeable future. But again, uh, one can never be absolutely sure. Michael Hughes. Thanks for joining me. This has been a great conversation. Great. Thanks for having me. The Democracy Paradox podcast is possible because of the support of many people and institutions. I want to thank Bloomsbury Academic Press for a copy of Embracing Democracy in Modern Germany. I want to thank Apes of the State for allowing me to use their music. You can find them on Spotify or their Bandcamp page. As always, I would not be able to produce these podcasts without the support of my wife, Julie, and the good behavior of my kids. The home of the Democracy Paradox podcast is at democracyparadox.com. Thank you for listening.
The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu.